0: May I ask you to go to Romans chapter 8 if you would, if you have a Bible with you. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. If you don't own Bibles, we have free Bibles in the back. Be sure and grab one of those for yourself on the way out. Love for you to have a copy of God's Word. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they all tell... Essentially, the same details, a few of them change some words out, but they give all the details, and here's the background. Jesus has been out in the countryside. He, he's really, really popular. He's at, almost at the zenith of his popularity, and so many people want to see him that they follow him every place that he goes, and he decides to go into a house. It appears it might be Peter's house in Capernaum. We're not entirely sure, but once he gets inside the house, people follow him inside the house. And there's so many individuals that they're they're just covering the yard outside. They're looking through the windows, trying to see him. And while he's sitting inside the home, some individuals arrive outside with a friend who's paralyzed, and he's laying on a pallet or a stretcher. And they want him to be in front of Jesus because they want Jesus to heal him. And and so they decide they can't get inside, so they're going to come through the roof, and they start taking the shingles off the roof. And they're going, to let Jesus, or they're going to let this guy down through a hole in, in front of Jesus. So I'm kind of picturing him, once he gets down there, he's like a spider on a web, kind of like hanging on these ropes, and, and he's right in front of Jesus, and Jesus' words to him are these, without anybody else saying anything else, he, he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, immediately the scribes and the Pharisees go into what the mode of the scribes and Pharisees is, which is they begin accusing, and they're grumbling, and they're thinking, why does he have the power to forgive sins? Only God can do that. So without further dialogue, Jesus just says, why are you questioning these things in your heart? So that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins on earth, I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. And the guy picks up his bed and walks out of the building. So the paralytic picks up a stretcher and leaves the building where he was entered into this building on a stretcher, unable to move. That story for me frames where we're going this morning because we're going to be talking about what Jesus has done in your life as a result of the forgiveness of your sin. If you're a believer in Jesus... There's things that are going to be done for you physically, eternally, in heaven. We're going to be talking about what God is going to do to transform you in order to get you ready for the inheritance that He has in store for you. In the life of this individual whom Jesus healed, something drastic had to happen to him. Something internal had to change. So God has to change something about you in order for you to get your inheritance. We're told that there's an inheritance waiting. God's got to prepare you for it. So I'm going to ask that you would pray with me right now, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, and that we would really listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we invite that. We ask that you would be our teacher, our guide, but also, Father, that you would be our source of inspiration. As we come before you right now, that we would understand through the power of your word as much as we can. The things that you're holding in store for us, things that you want to do. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick review with you, uh, where we've been in Romans chapter 8, just in the last couple weeks. Last week, we started with verse 18, and Paul stated it this way, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we ended with verse 22. And it says this, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. And we discovered that Paul was talking about all of creation on its tiptoes, waiting, neck outstretched, longingly looking for something that's coming, a transformation, a future regeneration. It's not an if, it's a when. So all of creation waiting for what God's going to do working through this, we've discovered in verses 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 last week that there is this suffering going on and it's real. And although there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of groaning, it's not meaningless and it's certainly not from a father who is uncaring, who's disinterested in us. So Paul used the phrase in verse 22, we know, and this is what we ended with last week, we know, Paul says this is a common knowledge. All of creation is in pain, it's evident there's global suffering. We talked about earthquakes, and we talked about tsunamis, and we talked about th- the things that destroy this earth, but also we talked about the reality that there's earthquakes in our own soul, th- that we've got troubling in our own heart. There's broken relationships and broken bodies. So we too are part of this suffering. And Paul says this is, there's meaning to it, there's purpose in this, and it's like the pain of childbirth. It's like waiting for a baby to be born. So he made the case, it's a witness. All of the suffering is a witness to a God, a Father who's loving, and He's trying to draw us into deeper relationship with Him, certainly not an uncaring God. It's a God who's saying, pay attention, because there's times coming when all of this will change. It will all be regenerated. And the last thing we discovered is that Jesus didn't just come to forgive us of our sins. He came to restore us, but he came also to restore all things. He said, I'm making all things new. Well, the reality of that is that part of him making all things new, if we continue in that thought, all things new means you also. There's things that God's going to do. He's going to give you a perfect body. Anybody here ready for that this morning? Okay. God says, I've got a perfect body in store for you. So verse 23 starts out by saying, we groan, we're, we're part of this groaning process too, we're waiting for a glorified body. And I said last week as we closed, if, if you're younger than 30, you might be thinking, why do I need that? Well, I feel pretty good the way I am, I like what I look like. I'm feeling like I'm ready to go. Well, we're going to spend a lot of our time in verse 23 this morning because it's going to surface questions for you. So I'm going to challenge you to do this. Maybe pull the notes out of your bulletin and just write down the questions that pop in your mind as you work through this. This Saturday night service last night, we always do Q&A afterwards, and we went for 40 minutes afterwards just with questions about the things we're working through. And again, this morning, the 815 service, it surfaced lots of questions, so there may be things that come to your mind as you work through this passage of why we're waiting and what God's going to do for us. Go with me into verse 23 of chapter 8, and this is the way Paul stated it. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. As a teenager, I worked in a nursing home. Now today there's much more politically correct terms. They, they call them assisted living facilities or senior care homes, but I worked in a nursing home that was in my parents' hometown. It was close by. I got a job there, and they gave me a position in the kitchen. Uh, I was a dishwasher, right? And so I'm I'm prepping meals and washing dishes and delivering them to rooms within the facility. And there's this this memory that I have that sticks in my mind as soon as I think of that nursing home, the pungent smell that was there. A mixture of ammonia with bleach as the staff tried to keep the place sanitary and and clean enough that people could live there. And then after your senses were assaulted with the smell as you come through the door, the next thing you would encounter were individuals who were sitting out in the hallway in their wheelchairs who were groaning and, and moaning. And some engaged me in conversation, and some had enough presence of mind to be really pleasant in the setting that they were in, but they were completely detached from all that they knew. And some were so detached, their their mind was completely gone. Others thought that they were being held there as hostages. So occasionally there was an individual who would slip me a piece of paper and say, here's a phone number, call my family, they don't know that I'm being held here, (laughs) thinking that somebody had mistakenly put them in. So there was a sense of desperation... There was a sense of longing, wanting back what they had. There was an unfamiliarity with the surrounding. But I came to realize as I worked there longer that that place was filled with both believers and non-believers, people who identified faith in Jesus Christ and people had no interest in God whatsoever and were downright angry. And understanding that setting helps me to understand what Paul's writing in verse 23 when he puts a really strong emphasis in verse 23 on we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we who are destined for eternity, even we who are the children of God, we groan also. There's no exception if you're living on this planet. Even we are struggling. We especially struggle, Christians. Because we have the privilege of being the children of God, but we also grown in part because we know there's something better waiting for us. And so there's a longing of, I want that. I want that thing that's waiting out there. It leaves, leaves us with an expectant longing, God, bring it now. There's so much more than what we have here. So in the last couple of weeks, we've been using an anchor verse of 1 John 3, 2. And this anchor verse is kind of a match for what we're talking about. Look with me. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. As you study the Bible, you find passages like these that are linked together. They help us understand there's something drastic that has to happen in order for us to take possession of the inheritance that God has in store for us. If you're in Jesus Christ right now, you are spiritually ready for what God has in store for you. Amen? Amen. Spiritually, you're ready. Physically, you are not ready. Romans 8.1 is true of you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So spiritually, you're ready for eternity. But you're not physically ready. It's your body that is yet to be redeemed. The internal portion of you, it's already ready. You are a new creation. Just to close this portion so we can move on to the the physical component of this, look with me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. If you're in Jesus, that's true of you. But something drastic has to happen in order for you to inherit what God has for you. Something drastic has to happen between the grave and the gates of splendor. You cannot enter heaven in the form you're currently in, in the condition you currently are in physically. And I use the word physically intentionally. God created you as a physical being. You will be a physical being in eternity. Spiritual, absolutely. Physical, absolutely. I use that word intentionally. So Paul adds us to the list of those who groan in verse 23. We are those who groan along with all of creation. Because things are broken as they are currently, there must be a change. So bear down with me just on those five words of verse 23. We're we're waiting eagerly. He's, what for, Paul? For the redemption of our body. And he's talking about a physical body here. Because you're incarcerated in something that's imperfect physically imperfect, emotionally imperfect. People say things that hurt you. You say things that hurt other people. Physically, you can be wounded, accidents happen, things ravage our body, diseases come. So I'm gonna challenge you right now just to think of a time in your life when you can say, "I, I was at my absolute strongest. Think of when you slept the best. Think of when you woke up the most refreshed, when you were at your full mental and physical capacity. Chances are you're thinking of when you're in your 20s or when you're in your teens. And if you're in the room and you're in your teens or 20s, you're thinking, oh, that's right now. What's he talking about? I feel good. I don't know what it's like not to have that. Well, if you're in your teens and you're in your 20s right now, you probably feel pretty invincible. Things may set you back. You occasionally catch a cold or you get the flu like anybody else, but you recover really quickly, and so you feel invincible, and I remember that feeling. I remember in my 20s doing some really stupid things with airplanes when I was in flight school just thinking I was invincible, and things I would look at today and say, what was I thinking? Things that were absolutely dangerous. Now, if you're in your 30s, you're still potent, and you're really strong, but you've developed a, a sense of wisdom to go along with that. And so you temper your activity. But by the time you make it into your 40s, you have begun to physically diminish. The lines have begun to appear. You just don't know it yet. It's visible to other people. Now, by the time you make it into your 50s, you have diminished. You just don't want to admit it. And so you're living in denial. Now, by the time you make it into your 60s, you admit it. You willingly accept it. And so you start using language like this. So did you know 60 is the new 40? right? To to which your friends behind your back laugh at you, because they're thinking, you don't look like you're in your 40s. Now, if you're in your 70s or greater, you're looking at the rest of us saying, you guys, you have no idea. You just laugh and smile at us. You're just thinking it went that fast. See, in like these 10-year segments, the decay happens, and it just continues to march on. You can't stop it, for three weeks now, I've been telling you that you're heirs to a kingdom. You're a child of God, and something is in store for you. Heirs, according to verse 17, children of God. So in the first week, we learned that we inherit one specific thing. We get God. We inherit God. Last week, we discovered that we inherit a new creation. God's going to make all things new, new heaven and new earth. And now we find we get to inherit a resurrected body. So there's going to be a physiological change. So that's why Paul writes in verse 23, we're waiting eagerly for that, for the redemption of our body. So the question logically comes to our mind: what will I look like in heaven? What is this describing here? I'm here to tell you this morning: you look good. You look marvelous. If I'm playing and lean back into the Billy Crystal era, I'll say, you look marvelous. If you're of a certain age, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You look good, but you're going to look better. You're going to look magnificent according to what Scripture describes. Now, the Bible gives us bits and pieces of details and, and regarding your resurrected body or what Scripture calls your glorified body. You can find clues in the book of Daniel, and you can find it in the book of Matthew, and you can find it in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians specifically. I'm going to put 1 Corinthians up on the screen for you, 1 Corinthians 15, because it gives this series of contrasts back and forth. I'm going to show it to you. It talks about your present form is weak. Your resurrected body, it's described with strength. Your earthly bodies, they die. Your future body, it's going to be immortal. And in short, your new body is going to be powerful and perfect, and it's going to be eternal. Look with me at this passage. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Do you see the back and forth? Contrasting one to the other. But bear down especially on that last part. Do you notice that last comparison? We now, according to the Bible, have what's called a natural body. But it says, then, a spiritual body. It does not mean that you become a ghost. You're not going to be this disembodied spirit that's floating around, unable to interact with other things. You're not floating around with no form. Because according to Scripture, and we just saw that in 1 John, ultimately, you will be just like Jesus. You will have the same form He has, a future body like His. We do not know exactly what that means until we see Him face to face, but there's things we can draw out of Scripture. So I thought perhaps the best thing to do would be to contrast us to things that we see in the Bible, contrast us to where we're at now, to what we understand. And I thought we'd start with Adam and Eve before the fall. Created perfect, created in the image of God. And so you come to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and you find God saying everything that He created is not just good, He says, very good. That includes Adam and Eve. So that means perfect eyes, perfect teeth, perfect muscle structure, perfect hair, right? Perfect brain capacity, perfect intellect, no diminished mental capacity whatsoever. How do I know that? We're told that God brought before Adam all the animals that he had created, and whatever name Adam gave to them, that was their name. Can you imagine the breadth of his vocabulary? I'm good with getting cat and dog out. I might be able to say zebra, but what do you do when you come to platypus or giraffe? That continued on and on and on and on to all that God created. And when Adam was done, God said, that's their name. That's a good job, Adam. Now that's the God who creates perfection. And he said, Adam, you did a great job. What about this one? Notch it up a little bit. Perfect in his relationship with God to the degree that he could walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Could you do that? No, you'd be incinerated. No man can see God and live because we're in fallen form, yet Adam, in perfect form, perfect relationship with God, could walk with God, talk with God. We can't do that. You know you don't measure up to that. Now, in contrast to that, we see the resurrected Jesus so we've contrasted ourselves to Adam. Let's contrast ourselves to Jesus. During the time between the resurrection before he ascended into heaven, what's going on with Jesus' body? Well, he looked like himself, yet he's not recognizable when he doesn't want to be. In other words, he could turn it on and turn it off. Think of Mary at the garden when Jesus was first resurrected. Sunday morning, Easter morning, she stands outside his tomb, and she sees him and thinks he's a gardener. Sir, where have you buried him? Where have you taken his body? Just tell us so we can go and find it. Until Jesus turns it on, and then she recognizes him. The same was true with his disciples. He was able to eat. We're told that he cooked breakfast for his disciples. He still had visible, physical, recognizable marks of His crucifixion. There were still scars on His body. Jesus said He could be touched. We're told according to the Bible, they touched Him. He could appear and disappear instantaneously, not hindered by solid objects, able to pass through locked doors, coming into locked rooms. Yet, Jesus Himself says, after the resurrection... I want you to understand I'm not a spirit. Look with me on the screen. Luke 24:39. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I think Luke 24:39 goes into the category of things that God wanted you to know. He moved Dr. Luke to write that down so that you would understand what your future body will be like. When 1st John Three says, we will see him and we will be like him. And Jesus says, I'm not a spirit. There's flesh here, so you will have a physical form. Now, just as your earthly body is suited and built for life on this planet, your eternal body has to be built for eternity. So we find passages like this, Philippians 3.21, Jesus will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Or 1 Corinthians 15.53, what about this one? The imperishable. This perishable, it must put on the imperishable. This mortal, it must put on immortality. Why? Because your earthly body, the form that you're in right now, it limits you in ways that your spiritual body will not. And God expects things of you in eternity that you will be able to do that you can't do right now. So logically, another question, how is he gonna do this? Well, there's things that our finite mind cannot comprehend, we can't process. But first of all, know this, we can believe him because he's truth, right, church? Amen. Amen. He never lies. God cannot lie. So he tells us the truth. Originally, we were made absolutely perfect, as we just talked about, perfect muscle structure, perfect brain. But sin brought dishonor upon us, and our decaying bodies are described by 1 Corinthians with one word. It just says, with dishonor. We were sown in dishonor, meaning we bear the effects of sin, and that's why there's the groaning That's why Mark Kring as a teenager heard those elderly women in the hallways of the nursing home crying out for someone to rescue them in that situation. There's the groaning of sin. But in Jesus, praise God, all that changes because of His transforming power. In the same way He has the power to forgive your sin. He has the power to transform your physical body. So God says in his word, he's going to raise you up one day and he's going to give you a glorious body completely free of all the ravages of sin. Now you know why my mind was going to that story in Luke chapter 5. They're letting the guy down through the roof and Jesus has to say to everybody, well, what's easier for me to say you're forgiven of your sins or to heal his body? Well, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins on earth, I tell you, stand up and walk. He has the ability to do both because he has the power. According to what Scripture says in Philippians 3.20, you see this on the screen. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the what church? Of the... Of the power, the power that he has to do what? Even to subject all things to himself. Okay, so how will my body be different from its physical form? I want to know that. Well, even though there's the fall, even though there's a fall of man, your natural body is still suited to survive on this planet. It's harsh. It's hard on you. There has been elements of change. The sun that was created to do things that we would have not been harmed by is now harming us. The the radiation effect of the sun gets through and it it ages our skin. It, It does things to our body. The elements, the wind, the rain, it does things to us because we became perishable. We are mortal and now we're vulnerable to all kinds of diseases that ravage this planet. So there's aging, and there's deterioration, and there's death, and it's inevitable for everyone. I don't care if you're a teenager or if you're 80, it's going to happen because God said in Genesis chapter 3, you're dust, and you're going to return to the dust. From dust you came and to dust you will return. So that means our current bodies, this form that you're living in right now, it is incapable of what is expected of you in eternity. So we're told according to 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit. Flesh and blood can't get there. You can't have what God has in store for you, yet you've got a promise that God says you're going to inherit it. So that means you need a resurrection body one that is absolutely imperishable, free from all the restrictions of sin. So picture this with me. A new body perfectly built for a new environment designed to stand in the presence of the ancient of days and to actually look upon him and not be incinerated. That means something about who you are and what you're going to look like, because then you will perfectly be suited to look upon Him and not just God. You're going to look upon each other. You'll see the ramifications for that in just a minute. To do that, you're going to need new eyes, you're going to need new ears, you're going to need new vocal cords, you're going to need a renewed mind. I didn't say a brain transplant. But God's going to have to refresh your mind because you're going to need to see things and understand clearly so that you have perfect thought, perfect voice box. Who would like perfect pitch here this morning? I've heard you all sing. (laughs) You you sing great, but we could be better, right? Okay, so let's, let's process this. You will need to be able to process praise and worship in ways that are not currently known to you. This really bugged me as a teenager because as I read the book of Revelation, I saw that we're supposed to praise God for all eternity. And I remember thinking to myself, like how many times can you sing Amazing Grace without getting bored, right? Like what, 10? I'm out maybe after two hours of doing that. And we've got eternity day after day after day, unending goes into infinity and we're supposed to be praising God it seems so boring to me, like praise, 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 70,000 times later, praise, praise. Why? Well, I, I, I don't have a clear mind. We see things dimly through like a fog, God said, but then you're going to see clearly because you're going to see Him face to face. So I ask myself, what's that going to be like? How many times can I sing God with this current body, sing praise to Him, my guess is most of us, though, when we start thinking about these things, are thinking like, "Am I going to be able to drink cafe Mocha up there, because I really want cafe Mocha. That sounds good. Double shot of chocolate. I, I, I want to know, what am I going to get? Here's my challenge to you. I want to challenge you. Get a bigger picture. Get a bigger view of what's in store for you. You want to talk about Cafe Mocha? We can talk about that after the service. Or you could read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. He did a great job addressing the issue of what you're going to eat in heaven, what you're going to consume. And yeah, I believe that you are going to consume and you are going to eat, but I'm going to challenge you to get a new view. Keep the big picture in front of you, church. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So according to Scripture, Everything changes. You were condemned, you're not condemned. You had sin, God removed your sin. You get a new body because the present body doesn't work. God says, because of who you are in Jesus, everything changes. Not only no condemnation, but an inconceivably fantastic inheritance waiting for you. So I have an expectation, and you should have an expectation as well. You Are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ? So you need expectations. You are the princes and the princesses of a kingdom yet to come, heirs to God's throne. I know you're thinking right now, Mark, that sounds so vague. It's ambiguous. How can I put my mind around that? What does that mean? Well, here's just one detail to tease you with. Long before you and I ever walked this planet, God moved in the hearts of the authors of the Bible to write down details, things that he thought we could handle because he knows we can't handle the whole picture. We probably want to be committing suicide to get ourselves there. God says, I know you can't handle it, so I just give you bits and pieces. He tells us that if we're wise enough to choose Jesus... If we're wise enough to go after him, we are destined for a future glory that will cause us to shine, and I do mean that in a literal way. Let me show you some passages. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who have insight, and he's talking about wisdom here. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, it doesn't say you're going to be a star. It doesn't say God's going to make you into a planet. It says you're going to shine. You personally will be clothed with glory that coincides to the form of Jesus, to the degree that you will shine like Jesus. Jesus said this himself. Let me show you on the screen. It comes from Matthew 13. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. That is a splendor, like the constellations of the heaven. Now I want you to think about what Jesus is saying here because Daniel also repeated it. You find Scripture speaking to Scripture. What happens when Paul is riding on a horse to Damascus? And Jesus knows he's on his way there. And he shows up in such an explosive light that Paul is literally knocked off the horse to the ground. Before Jesus ever says a word, boom, the light is so brilliant, we're told it's brighter than the noonday sun. That's consistent with what John wrote in the book of Revelation. I looked, and I saw him, and he was brighter than the noonday sun, and I couldn't look. The brilliance was that great. And yet, Scripture says we will be like him, and now we find it saying, you're going to shine. I take this literally, church. I don't know about you, but I do. See, in the language of Jesus, those who have wisdom to live for God, those who have the the wisdom to choose righteousness and keep his ways, those who choose Jesus, they're the ones who choose true wisdom. So I expect to shine so bright, you're going to be tempted to worship me. I'll be tempted to worship you. But we won't. We'll be worshiping God. God. Because He's deserving of all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. We're just the reflectors. We're the outshining of His glory. It's very likely, if this is your first time to church or if you're new to the Bible, you're looking at these things and you're thinking of one of two thoughts right now. You're thinking, that that's fantasy. Marvel Comics should get a hold of that and, and make a comic strip out of that. Or you're thinking this thought. I'm not worthy of that. I, I don't measure up. I'm here to tell you the truth is you don't measure up. You're not worthy of that. And everybody in the kingdom who belongs to Jesus Christ would say the exact same thing of themselves. We're not worthy of that, are we, church? It's not us. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. There's no one in this auditorium that can say, I get that because I'm good. It's not about our goodness, it's about His goodness, and He transferred it to you. So the Bible goes on to say things like this, it's not by works of righteousness that I have done, but because He saved us, because you can't save yourself. So if you're looking at this and thinking, that's too good to be true, I can't have that. I know this to be absolute and indisputable, that God has made a promise to you And he actually took an oath according to Hebrews chapter 6. I want you to see God's oath, his promise to you. If you trust in Jesus, God says this, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of promise. That's you, you're the heirs. The heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So God's taken an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things, what are the unchangeable things? First one, it's impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. Amen, New Hope? Yes. Cannot. We already clarified that earlier. God cannot lie. So what's the second one? Here's the second one, that you might have strong encouragement because you've got a God that cannot lie. You've got strong encouragement. We who have fled fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us, check out this hope. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. This is not a hope. Like, I hope the Detroit Lions win, that's no hope at all. (laughs) The hope description that we use in our language today is, I hope this works out. We use it like a good luck charm. (sighs) I hope things arrange just right so that this works out. This is talking about a hope that is an anchor, sure and steadfast. And when God uses that language, he's talking about something that is so guaranteed, it's like an anchor in the bottom of the sea. You can latch your ship onto it and it will not move. Why? Because God said it's going to happen. Therefore, it is unchangeable. So when God uses the word hope, it's a certainty that has not yet happened. That's a biblical definition for the word hope, a certainty that has not happened yet. So let me tie together in these last two or three minutes these thoughts from the last three weeks. There is an absolute reality. It's visible to all of us. Paul said we know there's a suffering on this planet. We all suffer the effects of the fall and all the aspects of it in every form have made life very hard here. There's a brokenness of body And there's a brokenness of relationships. There's a brokenness of heart. And yet Paul contrasts all of those things against the coming glory of your inheritance. He said, there's something waiting for you. This inheritance has value. And the true value of any inheritance you might stand to get on this planet, that inheritance is only measured by the worth of the person who's giving it to you. You can't give away more than you have. Well, your inheritance from God, it comes from the creator of the universe, the one who owns everything. So his resources are limitless. Therefore, your inheritance is limitless. That's why God can say, there are things in store for you that the, the mind has never imagined, the eye has never seen. It's never entered into your heart. All the things that I've prepared for you, and yet God makes promises to you. First Peter 1, 4. You have obtained an inheritance. This one that belongs to you, it is imperishable and undefiled, and it will not fade away. So we discovered in week one, God is our inheritance. We get God, and he says things like this in 2 Corinthians 6. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's inheritance number one. Inheritance number two. We get a rebuilt planet. According to God, He's going to regenerate everything. God the Creator who made this place says, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will no longer be any curse, Revelation 22.3. You see that on the screen? There will no longer be any curse. It won't exist here. And in response to that, we understand according to what The Bible says the things around us, they're going to change also. All of creation is not going to be broken the way that we know it. Because Scripture says this, Romans 8.21, the creation itself, it also will be set free. See, Jesus calls all of this time awesome because he calls it the palingenesia, he calls it the regeneration of everything, and that's when he said, I have come to make all things new, and it only happens because of Jesus Christ. One day, because of Jesus, you will have eternal life with him, and nothing can stop it. Nothing can change it if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So that's why Paul writes 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-three: for this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. You will become like Jesus. Is that not awesome? Is that uh, not an amazing thought? And you get Paul as an older man writing to the people in the Corinthian church and, and like an uncle coming alongside them and saying, Hey, you guys, I have a secret, there's a mystery. There's a mystery about all these things. Look with me at this last passage on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. You see, your forgiveness in Jesus, your justification, it's only the beginning. That's just the start. God says, I've got way more in store for you. In the future, there is a beauty beyond anything known to us. You, new hope, will be the outflashing of God's glory See, I believe, New Hope, that God wrote these things down to help us in the midst of our struggles. We get this amazing anchor for the soul, no matter how hard of times you're going through, no matter how hard the struggle is. Paul writes, those things, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that God has in store for you. So Romans 8.22, it says it that way. It says, our suffering is short, but the glory, it's eternal. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Would you pray with me? God, this, this lays heavy upon us. You, you leave us with a sense of awe. And we would say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We'll take it now. And so you taught us to pray that way. You told us to pray for your kingdom to come. Help us to be diligent about doing that, but God, in the midst of it, while we're waiting, while we're in the waiting room, while we're eagerly anticipating, I pray that you would take what we have learned and make us courageous, courageous to speak of what we know to be true because you do not lie. You have said this is a reality, it's coming, get ready. So God, let us speak boldly to our friends, for those who have no hope, for those who are struggling, God, let us be a a source of encouragement to them. I pray for every one of us that way, and that we would leave this auditorium today, God, with a sense of exuberance over what's in store. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in this auditorium who have chosen wisely. We pray for those who don't know you yet, and we ask that you would draw them in through the power of your Holy Spirit. These things we ask of you in the name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.